Welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. Today I was joined by Ray Marola, who has been writing on Seeking Alpha for over 10 years. He considers himself a contrarian investor who likes to invest in stocks that are hated by the street. However, he also uses a very traditional value investing approach, inspired by the likes of Warren Buffett and his mentor, Benjamin Graham. Today we had a great conversation about the fundamentals of investing, how to pick stocks for investing, why it's often the case that the most hated stocks are the best stocks to invest in, the outlook for regional banks and the economy, and why management makes such a big difference when it comes to investing in a company. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ray, and I hope you will too. If you haven't already, please go ahead and check out Ray Marola on Seeking Alpha, and also please go ahead and like, share, and subscribe this podcast with all your friends and family. I really appreciate it. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, so you've been writing on Seeking Alpha since 2010. I'd love to know a little bit more about your background in finance, uh, how you got started with investing, and how you started writing on Seeking Alpha. Well, uh, regarding my... uh... Financial background, interestingly enough, I, I don't I don't have a finance degree or any particular financial background. I'm an engineer by degree. Uh, however, I got involved with investing as a young man, and it's over 40, 45 years ago. And uh, uh, part of the reason for that is uh, even as a young man, I had the objective to say as I got older, I wanted to become uh, financially independent, sufficient. And so I would say that uh, while I don't have a finance degree or any particular credentials as an investor, um, I'm self-taught and I've kind of learned it from the ground up myself. And uh, and as I, I joke with um, some of my colleagues, I said, I'll go toe-to-toe with any investment advisor. I just don't have a pedigree. <laughs> Awesome. I'm wondering then, you say you're kind of self-taught, what would be the uh, first book, first kind of resource that uh, you looked at and helped you get uh, started with investing? You know, the best single book I've ever read uh, regarding investing is, it's an old book, and it's called The Intelligent Investor. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was written by Benjamin Graham. The original publication was in 1949. It was periodically updated, and if memory serves me, I think the last uh, revision was might have been 1963, which is still quite some time ago. Uh, but that book, I look as somewhat of a springboard because uh, mm-hmm. what Benjamin Graham had the ability to do was speak to an investor who didn't necessarily have any kind of particular financial background and put investing into words for, I'll say, regular people and explain the difference between accounting versus investing. So to me, that would be one of the very top books. The other one, if I took a moment to say, is one of uh, Peter Lynch's books, Mm. and it's called One Up on Wall Street. And I also found that to be another very, very good read 
and uh, just uh, just an outstanding, I call it a resource for uh, actually an investor of, of any age or any level of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Intelligent Investor, a book that a lot of people are familiar with, not necessarily one that a lot of people have read. I mean, I know it's it's very long. I've perused it here and there. So based on what you just said, I get the idea that you're kind of more of a value-focused investor. Let us know how you think about investing when you look at companies. As an investor, uh, my strategy over the years has been developed. It's changed a bit. Uh, but I have been, maintained pretty true to what I would call is a bottom-up investor. And uh, and I... I I understand the difference between value investing and growth investing, but in some ways, I I agree with Warren Buffett, who said, "Well, any investment should be a value investment. In other words, there there should always be some reason that you were expecting the security to appreciate." But setting that aside, I think in the traditional sense of the word, I'm a bottom-up, fundamental value investor, and so what I seek to do is to find securities that, um, one, uh, have strong balance sheets, two, are well-managed, three, earn their profits in cash. I think that's quite important. Um, They are shareholder-friendly, and uh, and they have consistency. Mm -hmm. And their profits in cash? What do you mean by that? Well, there are some companies that when you start investigating their uh, financial statements, they may show that they make a good profit. But then when you turn to the um, operating cash flow statement, they don't actually generate much cash. And so there are some companies, and I tend to focus or appreciate these more, where if you look at what their net income is uh, after tax, and then you look at their operating cash flow, they will be where the cash flow number is the same or greater. Versus, uh-huh. in contrast, a company that may show a great deal of profit, but then when you look at their operating cash flow or free cash flow, there's very little. In terms of looking for investments, then how do you go about it? Do you then... Would you say you go through valuation metrics, look at what's undervalued, and then maybe dive into kind of the specifics or the SEC filings, that kind of stuff? I tend to do, and and that's why I I think that investing is really as much of an art as a science. Um, I start by looking for things that people hate. Mm -hmm. And I say that kind of with a smile on my face because especially now with with the internet, and there's so much uh, uh, almost like social networking regarding investing, is that there's a, a, a quite a deal of emotion and, and excitement or hatred, if you will, for certain stocks or certain industries. My typically where I will start to look is what the street hates. And that to me is because I also tend to be somewhat of a contrarian investor. And so if I can find securities that the street dislikes, but they fit the profile that I just mentioned about having been ticking these certain boxes, 
then what tends to happen, which is the second part of investing, is once you have a good fundamental investment, then it's like, well, okay, is there good value there based on price? Mm-hmm. And those two tend to coalesce, especially if you can start in an area maybe that people generally don't like. And I'll give you one quick example, which now, again, it's starting to turn. But if you were to go back a year ago, okay, the airlines were absolutely hated. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one wanted to touch an airline at all. Well, that's the time that I was looking at my favorite airline, which is Alaska Airlines. And that actually goes to another axiom, if you will, and I and I mentioned this before, but sometimes your old friends are your best friends. And so for cyclical companies, another way that I will, quote, find another investment is just go back, because I've done this for such a long time, and say, well, what's a company that, for whatever reason, the stock became overvalued or the industry was out of favor or whatever? Well, then you kind of come back to it. Because while I tend to have uh, a buy and hold mentality, kind of, again, a la like a Warren Buffett, okay? I do not trade. Okay, I don't swing trade. But if it's a cyclical business, it doesn't mean that necessarily you have to hold it forever. So airlines and certain material stocks, certain industrials and so forth, they do tend to ride a cycle around the economy. And so if that's the case, maybe one of my favorites, like Alaska Airlines, will be at some point become overvalued, where then again, the street tends to love it. When the street tends to love a stock, that's when I start saying, maybe it's time for me to exit. I'm wondering then, since you mentioned this kind of uh, buying stuff that's hated and kind of the cyclical nature of it as well, um, what are your thoughts on then regional banks, which of course, you know, at one point, uh, let's say were very hated. And I know the thing, the Fed just recently conducted that stress test uh, with a bunch of major banks that they all passed with flying colors, supposedly. So what are your thoughts? Because I actually um, put a trade out to my subscribers on regional banks, which has done quite well so far. I'm out of it now, but we uh, we managed to buy the bottom on that quite well. What are, what are your thoughts? It's interesting you mentioned that because that has been one of the areas, and I have a specific stock that I like, but there are many. Regional banks were absolutely despised. Like mm-hmm. they're just all going down the drain. Well, no, there's some regional banks that to me are outstanding investors. And so that is one of the areas that fits a T to kind of the model that we're talking about. And the specific one that I like is Bank of the Ozarks. And, mm-hmm. uh, but there are other regional banks that are good. And I do review other regional banks, like uh, Cullen Frost is also an excellent regional bank choice. But uh, again, you were, uh, in terms of like overall investment philosophy, I don't believe that the individual investor should own boatloads of stocks. So my objective has never been to create my own mutual fund. If I want a mutual fund or an index fund then, or, or an ETF, then I'll go buy that. But right. So I've got a limited number of securities. And so in the regional bank space, one of my very favorite stocks that I've accumulated a significant position now in is Bank of the Ozone. They're, and by the way, their president and CEO is a guy named George Gleason. I, I think he's brilliant. He is a brilliant banker. 
And he effectively took control of the bank when he was a young man. He's now, I think, 67 years old. God knows his stuff. Right. So I'm curious then, you talk about kind of having a few very concentrated holdings. How many positions would you say uh, are in your portfolio, more or less? For me, I would like to hold approximately 12 to no more than 15 core positions. And less is more, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah. that would be my maximum. Typically, I'll have approximately a dozen core positions. And then I will I'll also tend to have what I'll call just some stray cats and dogs. And maybe mm -hmm. they're like fragmented positions that I haven't fully divested of. Or maybe some position that I've held for a long time and I just have a stub of it left. But I don't have any particular reason for selling it. Because I don't generally sell stocks other than for two reasons. One of the reasons is valuation. And the second reason is some sort of, I'll say, impropriety. So if there's like accounting irregularities, then I'm selling and I'm not going to fiddle with it. But mm -hmm. other than that, I don't tend to uh, buy and sell very often. So again, 12 stocks, a few stray cats and dogs, and also why 12? I actually have a little bit of a reason for that number too. My view is that I think for an individual investor to do the right amount of due diligence on his or her portfolio, they need to spend approximately one hour per week per stock. Now, that's not necessarily <clears throat> going to be rateable. During earning season, it may be significantly more. Maybe in the lull, it may be less. But that's kind of my rule of thumb. And so my feeling is, is if I don't have that kind of time, then I probably have too many securities. And what I'm going to start to do is, if you will, kind of cut corners. And instead of taking the time to do the due diligence and check the, you know, maybe the filings and, and maybe do a little bit of side work and this and that, then it's like, oh, no, I'll get to that later and later never comes. So 12 for me, and I'm a retiree, that's about right. Mm -hmm. right. It's a very interesting and certainly an approach that is different to a lot of people nowadays who are just, you know, kind of chasing the latest trend and always always looking for the next new thing, you know, as opposed to just, you know, focusing on those high conviction picks. Yeah. Now, I was wondering, we've talked a lot about specific stocks and investing. Do you have any thoughts on the current macro outlook? Because, you know, we did get, for example, Jerome Powell coming out yesterday talking a little bit about inflation, the likelihood of a couple more rate hikes. Uh, is this something you think about and how does it affect your investment decisions? I would say that the, the, the macro backdrop is something that I follow and it's something that I'm interested in. But quite truly, it doesn't have a great deal of effect on my investing. And, I'll, and I can elaborate a little bit on that. So, for instance, we talked about, okay, uh, uh, Mr. Powell has talked about, well, you know, rates may stay higher for longer. We may be into 2025 before we start to see moderation, uh, you know, so on and so forth. At the end of the day, I don't think he really knows, okay? And I'm not sure, and that has nothing to do, I think he's a brilliant man, okay? And I think a lot of the, economists or analysts that do the macro, they're smart people. But at the end of the day, they don't know. 
And I'll give you a specific example. On one hand, we were just talking about Jay Powell, and he's more or less indicating that, hey, look, we've raised rates quickly, yet inflation is still not tamed. And what I'm reading between the lines is that he's almost a little bit puzzled by that. Now, he doesn't come out and say that, but it's kind of like, okay, look, I've just raised the rates as fast and as hard since Paul Vogler back in the 1980s, okay? And yet inflation is is still above 2%. And while it looks like the economy is slowing in some areas, in other areas, it sure doesn't look that way, okay? Then on the other hand, I read another article past my desk today, and it was about the CEO of Walgreens. And he's talking about, oh, we're going to close 150 stores and the economy is contracting so quickly and our, you know, we're in trouble and we're going to have to start borrowing money because we want to do X, Y, and Z. And so what I tend to think happens when you focus on the macro is you're going to get a lot of noise and a lot of information. <laughs> But I'm not sure at the end of the day, you can. there's a lot of actionable investment within that. Now, I'll mitigate that a little bit. What I would say now is we are in a period of time where the Fed expects, and what we're seeing is, a tightening or a contraction cycle. When that happens, typically there are certain stocks and sectors that will tend to do better coming out of that than going Mm -hmm. in. And so that's kind of in the back of my mind. But remember, you're dealing with timing and lags. And so I don't tend to really put a lot of it into action. But so, for instance, right now, I'd say, well, do I want to pile into utilities and drug stocks? Well, no, probably not, because tightening may go on, and we may go another year or two and have a kind of a sloppy economy. But clearly we're on the we're closer to the end of that than the beginning. I don't I don't think we're gonna go back into some kind of like 1937, 1938 double dip recession. But if that's the case, I think that certain stocks like tech and certain industrials and bank stocks are probably better than Focusing on, well, what are the recession-resistant stocks? And I could be completely wrong on that. But I'm just saying that's the way I would look at it. And while I wouldn't then divest of all of my utilities and drug or pharma stocks, I'm not going to pile into those either. I'll be looking to maybe slowly ease out of some of that and ease into things like Federal Express or Lockheed Martin or... Union Pacific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the stuff you say, I think, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you talk about, you know, that macro having so much noise, you know, they get so many data points, contradicting data points. You know, I think if you look at some of the news headlines, you've seen like very strong jobs reports, for example. On the other hand, you know, I've seen now a chart circulating around talking about how bankruptcies are starting to spike up. So, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of contradictory information out there, and it's it, it is hard to put into investment. I mean, I I try to do it, but it's it's certainly not easy. It's not easy. Now, right. I want to go back to something you mentioned before. You were talking about the importance of management. You you know, we're talking about how good the 
that manager was at um I forget the company Bank mentioned. of the Ozarks. Right, exactly. Yeah. Actually, it's Bank um, OZK. It's Bank OZK now. Right. I was just wondering uh, if you could give us a little bit more information on how you assess, you know, the uh, the management of a company. What you think? And for example, you mentioned, uh, I think, Home Depot. Yes. Is that right? As a man. Yes. As a manager that you look up to, what, for example, what is um, why 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 would what makes you say that exactly? I'm curious. James, that is such a great question, and I love to answer that when people ask, because there is a, a I guess a certain group of investors who basically say, well, because I don't control the company, I don't control management, they're not going to listen to me. It doesn't matter. They're just going to do whatever they do. And they all tell stories and blah, 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 blah. And I very much disagree with that. And I would kind of put the hat on, which would be very similar to when I was working in business and was a manager. And I would say to that person, Okay, let's say you have a manager reporting to you. How would you evaluate whether or not you thought they were doing a good job? Well, one of the things that I would do is say, do they have goals and objectives? And if the answer is yes, then it would say, well, do they meet their goals and objectives? If they make promises, do they fulfill them? And if for some reason that they can't fulfill them, do they come to you ahead of time? And explain, I'm not going to be able to meet this goal or objective. I'm telling you ahead of time, and here's why. Or do they just wait till the deadline passes and then say, well, okay, I've flunked the course. Well, that's exactly what an investor can do with the CEO and the C-suite group with any publicly traded company. Okay. Mm -hmm. The first question is, do they set goals and objectives for themselves? Not the ones that the street is setting, it's the ones they're setting. So Home Depot, which is one of the I, I like Home Depot stock and I like their management, but they set out some, some, for me, very clear and very easy to understand goals and objectives, the management team. And then they will come back and report how they're doing during the course of the year and whether or not are we making our numbers, are we meeting our strategies. And the metrics may not all be financial. Some may be operational metrics and so forth. So that's one way that I evaluate management. Do they set goals and objectives? And then do they meet them? And if they do, well, then that to me is a real positive because they're effectively telling me where the company's going and they know enough about it that they demonstrate it. They, they can call that right, okay? Another thing would be is, are they shareholder friendly? And by that, I mean, okay, are they basically taking all kinds of stock incentives and options of restricted shares and paying themselves? Okay. Or are they meaningfully reducing the number of shares outstanding should they decide that we want to have a share repurchase program? Did they do that opportunistically or did they just say we're going to do it on a routine schedule? Do they pay a dividend, and is the dividend something that you can count on, or is it something that comes and goes? So to me, how they treat shareholders, uh, that would be, you know, a shareholder-friendly company would tend to be one that as a, as a shareholder, I can also get a pretty good idea how, how do they act and react with me as a faceless person. 
There's another one, and I'll mention this because it, it, it tends to be for smaller companies. Once in a while, I'll have good fortune with a, with a larger company. And it's another one that if you uh, are really doing the due diligence, you try to call them. Now, I can't necessarily get anybody, a CEO, to come mm. talk to me, right? But I can get other people in the company to talk to me. And I, I have been, over the years, very surprised at, um, and maybe because I write for Seeking Alpha, maybe because of my background, whatever it is, you can call up a company and say, well, I'd like to talk to somebody about X, Y, Z. And I'm talking about publicly, public information. So you're not asking them for anything that they can't provide, but maybe something's not clear. Or you're just like, well, I will tend to favor a company that will get back to me and talk to me. And there are ones, and again, I we've mentioned a couple of them already. Uh, Bank OZK, I've, they'll, they'll talk, okay? Uh, Alaska Air, they'll talk. Believe it or not, AT&T, you can call them, and somebody will talk to you. Now, other companies don't give you time today. You can send them an email, they won't send you. There has been a case where there was a, a publicly traded company, it was a utility, and not only did they call back, they said, well, let's get to, we, we want to get ourselves together and set up a conference call with you. And understand, all I am is an individual investor. I mean, I'm, and it's, and I don't own half the company or anything. And they had on like their uh, CFO, somebody from HR or investor relations, and another manager. And they all sat down and talked to me for half an hour. I, that to me would be another signal that okay, I think this is a well-managed company. I like that. So I, I think those would be the answers. Primarily, make promises. Do you keep your promises? Do you set goals and objectives for yourself? Do you speak clearly? That's another thing. You know, companies have conference calls, and they also have. Um, kind of investor conferences that they'll do in between conference calls. I tend to read those transcripts and uh, you can learn a lot from those by how they answer questions. Are they are they answer questions or are they non-answers? Mm-hmm. So I think there's ways that an individual investor can very much determine what sort of a management team he or she is dealing like you said, and I found this, you know, doing the podcast and the the idea that, you know, people are often quite happy to talk to, you know, even people who you might be surprised. I actually had a Brad Thomas on the show last week. You may know him. He's also on yes, Seeking Alpha. He's pretty big. And, you know, he was actually telling me because of the size of his network and he actually does uh, get on calls with a lot of these CEOs. And this is also something that uh, he thinks of a lot, which is, you know, the quality of the of the management, you know which is a very good point. I'm wondering then, do you have any examples of bad managers out there right now? Any any company you're staying away with because of a bad manager? Uh, well, that's kind of put me on a spot a little bit. There's certain certain <laughs> companies that I would not invest in. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a company that, uh, or a, a, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you a type of company. I see a lot of, um, tech and maybe med tech and some of the uh, uh, some smaller companies that when you start 
reading what they're saying and uh, trying to follow their promises and so forth. They just don't do a very good job. I, I don't really want to go out and criticize any particular mm-hmm. management team directly. I'll just say that um, there is a stark difference in how some companies act and react either to uh, publicly or with an investor uh, versus some others. And I'll leave it at that. But management uh, makes yes. And I'll tell you, that also goes back. It was a lesson I learned from working with, again, in a corporation. You know, they say, well, it doesn't matter. The corp- the cor- Corporations will move on with or without an individual. There's no question about that. Okay, but the question is: Is are they optimizing things, or are they are they plowing ahead in spite of themselves? It's like: Are you are you cutting through the water seamlessly, or is your bass boat towing an old pickup truck bumper behind? There's a big difference. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now we were talking before, and this is something you've said already: the idea of sometimes your best friends. Are your old friends? You mentioned that. And I wanted to go into some of the stocks that we were talking about earlier. One of them that I've been looking at and was a little bit curious about was uh, Skyworks Solutions, SWKS. Now, yes. I don't know a lot about this company. I'm, I'm looking at it. It seems to be involved in semiconductors, right? Yes. They are R- um, RF, RF conductors, yes. Right. I was interested because, you know, it's a... Uh, company that you know it hasn't really been so caught up in the kind of ai hype and it's one of the companies that you mentioned so just uh yeah i'd love to know a little bit more about your thoughts on this company skyworks solutions is a is a company that uh i've owned in the past i sold it in the past on valuation which i indicated earlier that would be one of the pretty much only two reasons that i sell um but then the stock uh through the uh, downturn in the economy and so forth just got absolutely pounded, just hammered. And this is this fits the bill for most all the things I'm looking for in a company. And they they it is a uh, semiconductor company. One of the keys or one of the things that sets them apart is a majority of their business is making the RF chipsets for Apple. Mm-hmm. So they're big. Apple, they are tied to Apple. Now, right. and so what you tend to find is if Apple does well, well, Skyworks is going to do well. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I suppose you could say, well, but, you know, then what if Apple was to ditch them, you know, and so forth? Well, I guess that could be a risk, but it's gone on for a long time. And if you start looking at the intellectual property and, um, with the ability of other companies to do that could potentially be a competitor versus their capabilities. I've always felt comfortable that I don't think Skyworks has a lot to worry about. And it is a company that absolutely is super well managed. They provide very clear and detailed uh, guidance and promises going forward. They earn, it is a cash generation machine. They generate more cash than profit. Okay, they treat their shareholders well. They have a nice dividend. And uh, if you go back, and right now the stock has come up. I, I, I bought it, I think it was maybe in the 80s, 80 to 90 mm-hmm. range. Now it's probably 
maybe 105-ish. So it's moved up a little bit. I think Skyworks is a $150 stock when it reaches its apex. It's also one of those kind of cyclical companies. So it's the kind of company that when it gets overvalued and everyone kind of piles into it, well, that's when I'll either divest or maybe just keep a little nub. But then when it gets really inexpensive, like I believe it is now, then I'll go right back to it. And from a due diligence standpoint, I'll have to go refresh everything, but you start to look, well, did the management team change? No, it's pretty much the same person. You know, did their strategy change? No. They still in with Apple? Yes. Now, what they are doing, which is a positive, is they're trying to expand their business, not by going after more of Apple's business, but by expanding into other chipsets for other industries, like you know, the Internet of Things and automobiles and so forth. So I find all that is positive. It's really one of my favorite companies. And it's relatively small. It might might be a mid-cap, but no more than that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Chips are kind of a bit of a hot topic now, especially with AI and all that stuff. Is that yeah. something that this company can benefit from? And also, do you have any thoughts on uh, this kind of AI hype? As you you might be able to guess from our discussion before, if it's hyped, I'm probably not going to rush to it. It's not, I, I think I think AI is a tremendous opportunity. And I think that it could be kind of, if you want to look at the age of technology, you go back, we had an agrarian age, then an industrialization age. Now we're in a technology age. Well, the technology age, like the ones preceding the other ages, they would tend to come, if you want to say, in stages, okay? So AI is going to be part of the same technology story. I think that story is tremendous, okay? However, do I want to rush into it now when everyone's buzzing and talking about it? No, uh, probably not. Uh, I think, for instance, like I like Google, okay? I like Google stock. They're involved with that. So is Amazon. I have Amazon mm-hmm. stock, I think. But those are really not pure plays in AI. Those are just you know two of the big tech companies that certainly will use that. Skyworks probably is not a probably not going to be an enormous player in the AI space. The types of chips they make are not they may not go in that direction. Uh, they might. I'll pay attention to what management has to say, but they're more into the radio frequency chips, like they're set for kind of like cars and handsets, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Just to wrap up, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, technical analysis. You mentioned that you use some of this to support your more fundamentally driven investment style. How do you fit in technical analysis into your investment approach? James, it definitely is an area that I have uh, I've changed my views over the years. Mm-hmm. When I started investing, I looked at technical analysis a bunch of voodoo. It's like, okay, yeah, this works until it doesn't. And, you know, I kind of look at this and it's like, well, yeah, it looks like you have some kind of a pattern. But I didn't, I dismissed it. Well, I'm here to tell you that I, I'm, I'm a closet chartist now, okay? <laughs> because there are certain things involving the charts or studies and technical analysis that I find very difficult to ignore. And some of them are, are pretty straightforward, like, uh, because I'm not into a lot of fancy charting, 
But things like volume and volume trends, it kind of makes sense, right? So if you see a stock moving on high volume, well, it's kind of, well, the, then probably the bigger players are more involved with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I follow moving averages. I think there's some validity to that. And then there's certain studies that I like, um, and some of them are kind of old, but I mean, you know, like the RSI and slow stochastic. And I think that when you set these up and look at them kind of, um, if you will, like alongside the price, and then you have these studies, I think there's things that you can tell that whether or not the market sentiment and the big players are moving or in or out of certain securities. And I think that's valuable. And I think it's valuable, too, because even if it was, let's say you're a long-term investor like me, but if I've made the decision to sell a stock, then in some ways you are a short-term investor because I'm going to sell it. And so if I were to look at a stock that I said, okay, look, I think it's fully valued. I'm going to sell it. But all the technical charts were still showing positive trends. Well, I might say, well, maybe I don't have to sell it today. I could sell it, you know, tomorrow or in a week. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I found that the charts are helpful to They'll provide a little bit of insight that maybe otherwise you wouldn't know if you were just looking at, you know, the fundamentals, which are updated more or less quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you uh, hearing you talk about that transition into kind of appreciating technical analysis a bit more. I know that. It's kind of a controversial subject in in, in some ways, you know. Uh, I've heard it being described as a astrology for men, kind of yeah. the idea you were talking about that kind of voodoo. voodoo. Yes, voodoo. <laughs> yeah, voodoo. I, I mean, yeah, and 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 I I would not be a um, technical investor. I I don't. I would not put enough faith in it for that. But I do think if you have a company and it shows solid fundamentals. And then it's backed up by the technicals and certain studies. I just think it kind of adds to, because effectively, as an investor, what you're trying to do is understand probabilities. Because I'll tell you, I'll, I'll leave you with one other thought, too. When people tell me, well, investing in the market, it's just like it's gambling. It's speculate. Might as well go to Las Vegas. I very much disagree. Because it would be no different than if you were running a business. And so, for instance, if I came to you, James, and said, I'm going to open up a pizzeria on the corner of Spruce and Goose, and I want you to put in X amount of money because I think this is going to be a really good deal, and you'll now own a piece of it. It'll be a silent part. I don't look at that as a casino. I look at that as you would start to say, well, Ray, do you have a business plan? Uh, do you have a good pizza? Um, are your employees any good? Uh, what do you know about this business? Who's doing your accounting? Okay, do you have enough capital to start? All you're doing is taking a whole bunch of data and then saying, based on this, this, I'll say all kind of data points. What are the probabilities of success? And so investing is doing the same thing. All I'm looking at. Is a bunch of information, listening to people, gauging the human side of it as well as the financial and operational, and then saying, are the probabilities more or less with me or against me? That's not the same as gambling. Gambling is basically you don't have any idea 
you're just going to base it on odds or, or luck. And I think that's why Peter Lynch, one of the things he said in his book, One Up on Wall Street, was he said, you don't have to get them all right either as an investor. If you get two out of three right, you will do just fine in the long run. And that's, mm-hmm. that's very helpful because it does not take a perfectionist to be an investor. Right, absolutely. Uh, that, that is a point that you know often missed by a lot of people. And you know, the difference between gambling and investing, I would say also the, the expected return in gambling, the house always wins, right? The odds are in their favor. Right. And right. with investing, if, if anything, you might say uh, the odds are always in your favor because in the long run, I mean, stuff tends to go up. But um, it's definitely a point that's missed. I think a lot also in the younger uh, generation of investors, you know, there's been a lot of uh, kind of, investing going on now with trends and the meme stocks and cryptocurrencies and kind of these kind of get quick rich rich uh, schemes. I used to teach a class to younger people and it had to do with investing and I entitled it get rich slow. <laughs> and because right, the idea of saying, well, I'm going to put money, I'm not going to do much work. I'm going to put money into some investment and I'm going to make a lot of money fast. I said, well, look, if you can do that, God bless you. I have no objections at all. It's legal. But I said, I don't know of too many endeavors that you can do where you don't have to do much work and you're going to make a bunch of money fast and the odds are in your favor. So, you know, you're going to have to do the work. It was once a, uh, it was a, a young man who came to me. He was day trading. He told me he had lost half of his savings. And he said, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, the first thing you should do is stop day trade. And then he said, then what? And then I explained to them kind of the basics of what I do in investing in terms of fundamental and ground up. In other words, specifically, what, do, what activities do I do in order to evaluate and, I'll say, maintain a stock portfolio? And it was priceless. He looked at me and he goes, well, yeah, but that's a lot of work. I said, well, of course it's a lot of work. If you want to make money, you're going to have to do some work. It's not, you can't just roll the dice here like in Vegas and expect that, that it's going to come back in. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that also speaks to maybe why he failed as a day trader. Because you know, I think you can legitimately make money, but it's like anything in life. You know, If, if you work hard and you're in the top 10% of traders, you'll make money. And if you're not willing to put in the hours, you you won't. I, I very much agree with that. And I think the other thing is, is, and we're kind of getting into another topic, but day trading to me, my opinion, okay, God bless people who do well in it. It's a sucker's bet, okay? You're going against machines, you know, computer algorithms, and people that do this and they're front running you, right, for fractions of a cent. And what makes you think that somehow you're going to get ahead of that? On the other hand, as a long-term investor, I don't care about any of that at all. As a matter of fact, I think the market as a long-term investor favors me because, as uh, Warren Buffett said, he goes, you can just sit there with your bat on on your shoulder and just wait for that one fat pitch. No one's forcing you to swing. So, again, a limited number of securities. Do your homework on them. Pay attention to the details, well-managed, sound balance sheets, earn profits in cash, shareholder-friendly. I think the probabilities are starting to tilt your way. 
makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Before we uh, log off, though, can you just let everyone know where they can find you on Seeking Alpha and if anywhere else? Um, yeah, uh, on Seeking Alpha, I go by my name, Ray Marola. You can look me up there. Um, I also do have an account on LinkedIn that is tied into my investing as, uh, as well as Twitter. But primarily, uh, I write for Seeking Alpha. And uh, I guess the other, uh, since it's kind of our paid political announcement, is I'm, I'm not a financier. I have no particular financial background. I do not try nor wish to sell anything to anybody. Um, I just provide advice and uh, my views on investing to people, and I hope they enjoy it, do their own due diligence and make a lot of money. That's it. Can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, I hope we can do it again sometime. Yes, I'd enjoy that. Thank you very much, James. All the best. All right, Red. See you around. Bye-bye, everyone. Once again, everyone, thanks for listening to The Pragmatic Investor. If you aren't already, please go ahead and follow me on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to the podcast. And remember that if you'd like more content on investing, I do a lot more on Seeking Alpha. You can find me there, James Ford, The Pragmatic Investor, where I cover crypto, the macro outlook, international stocks, and so much more.